Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. In this episode, we learn about an emerging cancer treatment technique called proton arc therapy, and we explore the myriad careers available to physicists in the green economy. But first, let's talk about the role that nuclear power can play in a net-zero carbon future. The recent worldwide natural gas shortages have illustrated the importance of having a reliable mix of energy sources. And as the world moves towards net zero carbon, it's crucial that countries find the right balance of sources to meet their energy needs. So what role should nuclear power play in the future green economy? To argue the case for nuclear, I'm joined down the line by Sophie Jenkovich and Henry Preston of the Nuclear Institute's Young Generation Network. Hi, Henry and Sophie. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you. Hi, thanks for having us. So, Sophie, you're both members of the Nuclear Institute's Young Generation Network. What are the aims of the network? Yeah, that's right. So the YGN, or the Young Generation Network, is a young professionals institute of the uh, nuclear institute. So it's kind of the young professional body. And our aims are really to champion the the positives of nuclear energy um, and kind of accelerate the conversation and really appreciate the different nuances that exist within nuclear and represent the young people within that. So yeah, it's a body of which is over 25 years old um, and represents around 1,250 members. So it's quite a large UK base currently. Like I say, we represent the voices of young professionals and our main ambitions are to inspire, to engage and to develop the young nuclear professionals that exist currently within the UK. And we do that in a range of different ways. We have a variety of STEM outreach programmes and I'm sure we'll come on to the other aspects of the YGN later. Yeah, it is really interesting. You're sort of targeting young people because a 2020 poll was done by the UK's Institution of Mechanical Engineers has revealed that only one quarter of young people age 18 to 24 know that nuclear is a low carbon source of energy. And and that percentage is much higher for older people. So Henry, why do you think young people in particular don't have a good understanding of nuclear energy? Yeah, it's a, it's a really tough question there. And I, and I think it links a little bit to the Institute of Physics own campaign, the Limitless campaign. It's all about getting young people, supporting them to do physics. And in that, so a lot of young people at the moment don't study physics and more broadly, not STEM subjects or post-16. So you don't necessarily have these tools to maybe critically analyse energy and all of its impacts. But it is it's still surprising that that's that because think everyone knows what low carbon is now and what that's all about and the problem of climate change is so well defined these days um, and there's so many voices in that public sphere but on the flip side of that there's not many clear voices talking about solutions and, and traditionally within nuclear within a very quiet sector um, so although you mention older people have a better understanding that might be because they uh, they grew up with an industry that was more outwards then it was if you remember the famous atoms for peace talk by President Eisenhower at the time uh, in the 50s, and, and that promise for the limitless energy of nuclear power as well. 
Um, so this is kind of why we, we wanted to do this Net Zero Needs Nuclear campaign, to be that voice for nuclear, to celebrate those benefits uh, to society and its contribution to Net Zero. So Sophie, um, can you tell us about a little bit about the Net Zero Needs Nuclear campaign? W- what are its aims? Absolutely. Netzeroneedsnuclear.com is a website that we've been using. And within the YGN, there's been a team of us um, that have been working on this for about, it was over a year now. So it's quite a long project and it's essentially it's in the run-up to COP and the ambitions of net zero needs nuclear is like Henry says just to really get the positive word out there show that as young professionals we're approaching nuclear in a little bit of a different way to has been done in the past so we're being a lot more open a lot more collaborative um, in the way that we're approaching these things and at COP which is the conference of the parties which is the largest international climate change festival conference that's happening in November 2021 in Glasgow. And it's essentially just a really great opportunity to all come together as a nuclear industry, but also as an energy sector um, in total, just to come together under a banner of net zero news nuclear, just to kind of go out and shout about it, really. It's a great campaign that... um, it's kind of the flagship YGN campaign that we're currently running at the moment. And in terms of aims, it's around accelerating the ability of the world to reach net zero by 2050, which is essentially what everyone is working towards, be, be it whatever sector you're in. And Henry, um, is it difficult to um, assuage people's fears about nuclear power in the light of disasters such as Chernobyl and Fukushima? So those fears, you know, they're very valid and understandable. Uh, given you know the media coverage received at the time of Fukushima and the recent drama series with Chernobyl, um, and, I, and I think as a scientist and physicist, we often want to go straight to facts and figures um, in these conversations, and I'm really tempted right now. Um, but the key is actually about humanising these conversations you have. And so, if you imagine that I'm an air hostess or, um, on an aeroplane and I'm trying to calm down a nervous flyer, the last thing I'm going to say is, "Oh, there were only two plane crashes last year." Um, or this plane doesn't even have a phalange, if you pardon the friend's reference. But um, what what you are going to say is, hey, can I, can I get you a cup of tea or a jam sandwich? And and then ask, where are you flying to? And what's, what's your plans there? You know, who are you excited to see on holiday? Um, and similarly with energy, it's all about our energy choices. All of our energy choices have impacts. Um, and studies, they show that nuclear's impact on society and the environment is at least as low as any other option. But, but what's important is how much that access to reliable, clean energy improves all of our lives and how we can reach net zero together as soon as possible. Um, so it's, it's really important to have those open discussions like that and share the full picture. And, and nuclear isn't the only game in town. Um, in, in fact, wind and solar energy systems have been remarkably successful um, in terms of rollout. They make up a, a significant percentage of many countries' energy mix. This has been an amazing success. And does that make it difficult to argue the case for nuclear when people can see wind and solar energy working so well, Sophie? It's a very big topic. And I don't think it does in any way, shape or form, make it more difficult to argue the case for nuclear. And I think the whole Net Zero Needs Nuclear campaign very much supports and strengthens that. Together is better. We cannot do this alone. Nuclear is not championing itself and putting itself on a pedestal and going, goodness, we are the only solution that exists here. We are very much stepping out and going, we are. We want to collaborate. We want to be involved and we want to stand alongside you as part of this essential energy mix. Um, and I just think on a personal level, and Henry is a lot more apt at talking about the technical things, and we've spoken about this before, so I'm sure he's got a good answer. Um, 
But just on a personal level, I've been very much reflecting on the whole future and what that will look like in the next you know, couple of decades. I'm very conscious that my future will be very different to how my children's future will look like and all those sorts of things. Nuclear offers many different possibilities besides just producing electricity. There's things around heat generation, um, medical applications. So there's a lot of opportunities there. Um, but just to focus on the electricity production, um, we are becoming so much more reliant on electricity. Our whole grid is is changing the makeup. Um, and this is just one small part. But for instance, if we're considering the massive uptake in electric cars that's predicted in the next few years, we need to just really consider what that is going to impact upon. How is that going to change the energy mix? And therefore, how does nuclear actually provide a really strong, powerful part of that, that um, new scenario? So, Henry, today nuclear is mostly used to generate electricity, but there are plans for next-generation facilities that will deliver a range of zero-carbon energy. Uh, c- can you talk a bit about those? So, so nuclear, as you say, currently is prime, primarily used for electricity. Um, and net zero means having a total of net zero emissions across everything we do. Uh, so electricity only accounts for about 11% of our total energy use. Um, and it's really difficult to decarbonize the high energy density fuels of petroleum for transport, for heating our homes, which are mostly gas boilers in the UK. Um, and it's even harder to decarbonize um, those industrial processes like steel and cement. Um, so for electricity, any nuclear power station at the moment, as we know, it works similar to a fossil fuel. Um, and there are effectively giant kettles boiling water to produce steam to turbine to generate electricity. Um, but the difference with nuclear is, is it's producing that heat through splitting the atom rather than um, producing CO2 emissions. Um, and that heat can have so many benefits beyond electricity, whether it's being used for district uh, domestic heating or industrial heat applications where we currently use fossil fuels. So next generation reactors are all about that heat. So you, you can think of one of them as the high temperature gas reactor, and that has potential to operate at, at very high temperatures, and that enables higher efficiency hydrogen production uh, compared to conventional electrolysis. Also, also whilst offering flexible electricity and harmony with renewable energy sources. Um, and then that hydrogen offers that potential to store energy um, and it can be used for transport such as fuel cells in cars or ammonia for shipping. Um, and so really, you see those wider applications of nuclear are key in reaching net zero. Button. And so... Um... How would you characterize the UK's nuclear energy program today and going forward into the future? The first thing I'd say is nuclear is really exciting. I think it's an absolutely cracking industry to work in and to be volunteering for and involved with. Um, Internally, I think, and I've only been in the industry for a fairly short amount of time, but I've definitely seen a bit of a change, especially with the framing of COP, in that we've adopted more of a creative, let's let's give it a go sort of approach, you know, and let's reach out and um, rather than being this sort of lone figure, let's actually let's engage with others that we might not have um, been able to or had the confidence to in the past. So I think in terms of like a future skill set, I would 100% recommend anyone and everyone getting involved at whatever stage of your career you're in as well. Um, I think often jobs are talked of as, you know, early careers and you've got a five five year window and that's it. And if you're out, you're out. Um, but I think within nuclear, there are so, so many opportunities um, in a range of different applications, you know, heat generation, electricity, all that sort of thing. Um, so from a future skills point of view, dead exciting. Yeah, so so nuclear, yeah, it's, it's very exciting, um, but it's also a really critical point right now. So the current generation of, of ADR, so advanced gas-cooled reactors in the UK, they're going to come to a close. 
uh, over the next decade, and we've only got one new nuclear plant being built. Um, although Hinkley Point C is going to contribute uh, about seven percent of the UK's electricity when it comes online, um, you know, there's there's it's a critical point at the moment. But it, there does seem like Sophie mentioned there's there's a bit of a nuclear renaissance going on, and people are getting excited again, um, and it's this growing excitement for the possibilities of, of the role of nuclear in a massive energy transition. Um, so as I mentioned previously, with those wider applications of, of hydrogen, heat and industry, we really we just need to, to take those promising words and turn it into action. Well, that's great. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Henry and Sophie, for being on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Henry has co-written an article called Why Nuclear Energy Must Be Part of Net Zero Climate Targets. And you can find the article on the Physics World website. Physicists have a good grasp of the basic science behind many of the world's environmental challenges. And they also have the problem-solving skills to get the job done. So it's not surprising that some physicists are doing their bit to build a greener, more sustainable future. To talk about green careers for physicists, I'm joined down the line by Laura Hiscott, who is Physics World's Reviews and Careers Editor. Hi, Laura. Hi, Hamish. So, Laura, you've written a a blockbuster article in the October issue of Physics World magazine about green jobs. And and that article looks at the career of nine physicists with jobs that are in or related to the green sector. What was it difficult to find physicists working in this sector? I think it was quite difficult initially, mainly just because um, I wasn't sure where to start. Um, I mean, I think the most obvious things, the most obvious jobs relating physics to sustainability are maybe... um, researching climate modeling or you know researching how to improve renewable energy technologies that sort of thing but a lot of people working in those well there are physicists working in those areas but a lot of people in those areas also have engineering backgrounds um and beyond that i wasn't sure where to look but once i started talking to people about it um I discovered that there are so many other physicists working um, in lots of other jobs related to sustainability that I'd never even heard of. So I think the difficulty was not knowing actually the whole range of jobs. And it was really um, interesting to discover the the whole range of jobs um, that physicists can work in contributing to the green transition. And in your article, you've you've divided the green sector into three areas. I, I suppose you have some people in there who are doing things like climate modeling and maybe working uh, in, in the nuclear sector. But um, you know, as you say, there are some really interesting careers there. So, so the three areas that you've come up with for your article are policy and behavioral change, decarbonizing energy sources, and the third uh, area is finance and economics. So, so who did you meet, Laura, that's working in policy and behavior? And, and, and what is policy and behavior? Yeah, so um, I kind of chose those three areas because it was quite an easy way to divide up the article and organize it, um, and it was quite convenient. But of course, um, 
quite a few of the people that I spoke to work on um, their work relates to more than one of those areas. And there are lots of other areas as well besides those three. Policy and behaviour area, that's really relating to how um, work that is trying to encourage behaviour change and policy change towards more sustainable um, policies and behaviours at every level, from the individual level to the corporate and governmental levels. So in that section, I speak to um, three people. So I spoke to Eunice Lowe, who is doing that kind of perhaps more traditional job that we would think of for a physicist working in this area. Um, She works on climate modelling at the University of Bristol. Um, So she's a researcher and she specifically focuses on heat waves and predicting the likelihood of heat waves at different intensities and frequencies, depending on how much global warming we see. And she kind of translates that into predictions of human health outcomes, because of course, these events can sadly have negative um, impacts on human health. And her work gets published in um, several reports, including the IPCC report. And the whole point of that report is to give it to policymakers and say, look, this is what will happen. This is the evidence we have um, and to inform them so that they can take appropriate action. And then I also spoke to Mark Crouch, who works at a consultancy called Mott MacDonald. Um, and he's actually the team leader of their carbon management practice. Um, and so what he does is um, he leads the team that uh, take a look at projects. They have clients that bring, um, I think, mostly infrastructure projects to them. Um, And they look at those projects and the plans for them on a full life cycle basis um, from, you know, building these, uh, you know, infrastructure projects to actually the operations once they're up and running. And they look at how the carbon emissions of those projects can be reduced and they make recommendations to those um, clients. Um, So that's really kind of the the corporate level um, of behaviour change. And then I also spoke to Rosemary Pickering, who works, interestingly, at Farfetch, which is a luxury fashion marketplace. And they have a sustainability strategy like many companies do. So this involves kind of, you know, setting up circular services, encouraging customers to buy more sustainable options rather than less sustainable options by providing them with the information about the products they're buying and choosing the best methods of transport for their products. And, oh yeah, setting up the circular services where they they offer customers the chance to kind of have their their items fixed or updated rather than buying entirely new ones, which obviously saves a lot of resources and emissions. So, um, yeah, so that was interesting to have such a diverse range of people in that category. Um, and that, of course, relates to the individual behaviour change. And the second category that you focused on uh, is decarbonizing energy sources. And that's something that sounds like it would be perfectly suited for a physics graduate. And I think in this in this sector, you met somebody who's who works in solar energy planning, implementation and operation. Is that right? Yes, that's right. I spoke to Anne Davies, who is the chief operations officer at Lightsource BP, and they develop solar projects around the world. And so they have 
people working there from all sorts of different backgrounds, including physics and engineering um, and chemistry. Anne Davies herself studied physics and then ended up working there on these solar projects, which is perhaps something, a slightly more obvious role for a physicist in, in sustainability. And you've got two people, I think, working in the nuclear industry. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. So um, I also spoke to Harry Chohan, who works at the UK Atomic Energy Authority, which is uh, looking at tokamaks and developing practical, uh, usable nuclear fusion into a good energy source. And so he really works on uh, neutronics, which is looking at the neutrons that are emitted by the fusion reactions. And, you know, that's important for kind of developing the shielding and ensuring that the components of the reactor can withstand the neutrons that are emitted by the reaction. And then I also spoke to Rianne Canavan, who works at Crossfield Fusion, and that's a very small startup at the moment. And they're looking at developing fusion reactors, um, slightly smaller scale ones than Tokamaks. And they also have several shorter term goals on the way, um, such as um, using their sources as like um, medical imaging, you know, equipment and stuff. Um, so that kind of relates to environment, but also a lot of other, you know, really beneficial things um, could come out of it. And the third category that you looked at, finance and economics, and, and that is a, that's a relatively common career path for physicists. Uh, but what are the green career options um, in this sector? Does it have to do with the pricing of energy and, and green investment, that sort of thing? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, um, I didn't realise actually until I started talking to people that there were green options within the finance sector, um, but it turns out there are. And I spoke to Rustam Majena, who's a senior pri pricing analyst at OVO, and that's an energy company with a focus on renewables. And they also work on electric vehicles and installing this kind of vehicle to grid technology where you can charge up your car, but your car can also export electricity back into the grid if there's a local sudden increase in demand for electricity. And then I also spoke to Flora Biggins, who's a PhD student at the University of Sheffield uh, currently. And um, she is looking at um, the pricing of uh, green hydrogen and batteries and energy storage, because of course, if we're to switch over to renewables, and um, because they can be quite intermittent, we need to um, have ways of storing the energy when it's generated and then um, using it later when it's not necessarily being generated. The important thing here is that companies actually invest in this technology. So she, is, um, she creates like computational models of how the prices of these technologies will change over time. And that's really to inform companies on how they can use these technologies to make a profit. And that will hopefully incentivize them to invest. And the ninth person that you spoke to, Laura, is somebody from the Institutional Investors Group on Climate Change, someone called Lewis Ashworth. W what do they do? Last but not least, I spoke to Lewis Ashworth. So um, the Institutional Investors Group on Climate Change, they're a membership body for investors who are concerned about climate change and, um, you know, sustainability. And so 
they really support their members to kind of drive forward sustainability within the organizations that within the companies that they invest in using various different means like their voting power and so on. They, they have lots of different programs that they're running. Um, one of the ones that Lewis works on is um, this Climate Action 100 Plus, which seeks to hold 167 companies, the largest greenhouse gas emitting companies in the world, to the goals of the Paris Agreement and ensuring that they, they kind of stay on track to, to reach those goals. Because finance is, of course, a really big um, part of this whole transition. Well, that's, that's really interesting, Laura. I mean, it sounds to me like you, you've discovered a, a, a sort of a whole world out there of, of, of sort of interconnected areas where physicists are working towards a greener future. Yes, definitely. And um, I think one of the things that really came across to me is that um, we can't just concentrate on one area. We can't just concentrate on renewable technology or just on behaviour change or just on finance, or, you know, any of the many other aspects there are to this, um, this area, we really have to kind of embrace all of them. We have to, you know, we have to embrace behaviour change, and we have to develop renewable energy technologies, and it all goes hand in hand, all of it together. So if you'd like to, if you'd like to learn more about green jobs in physics, do check out Laura's article. It's in the careers section of the Physics World website, and it's presented in three parts. And each of those three articles starts with green jobs for physics graduates. Look out for that in the headline. Thanks for joining me, Laura. Thanks, Hamish. Proton arc therapy is an emerging cancer treatment technique that some believe could offer significant benefits over conventional proton therapy. My Physics World colleague Tammy Freeman has been learning more about the technique, and she joins me now. Hi, Tammy. Hi, Hamish. So, Tammy, can you explain what proton arc therapy is? Sure. So... Looking first at proton therapy, so this is a type of radiation treatment used to treat cancer, and it works by targeting beams of protons onto the tumour to destroy any cancer cells. Now, it's similar to the more commonly used X-ray-based radiotherapy, but protons have a particular advantage in that they deposit almost all of their therapeutic dose at a particular distance inside the body, and this is defined by the beam energy. And this minimizes unwanted irradiation of normal tissues near to the tumor. So that's proton therapy. Now, proton arc therapy is just a new way of performing these proton treatments. And it works by delivering protons continuously while the gantry, which is the large circular structure containing all the delivery equipment, rotates around the patient. Now, interestingly, this technique was first suggested back in 1997. Unfortunately, at that time, there were only 16 proton therapy centres in operation and only one of these had a gantry. So the idea didn't take off as it was just too technically challenged. Uh, now, however, there are over 100 proton therapy centres worldwide, most with a gantry. So there's much greater potential for integrating proton arc therapy into the clinic. And this has led to an increase in research interest in this technique. And at the recent meeting of ESTRO, which is the European Society for Radiotherapy and Oncology, 
they held a dedicated conference session in which three speakers examined developments in proton arc therapy, its potential to improve cancer treatments, and also whether there's actually a need for a new proton therapy technique. So as you said, proton therapy is, is a very effective way of treating some cancers. So is the, this new technique, proton arc therapy, needed? Is it, is it much better in certain situations? It's all very early stage research, but for example, it's thought that proton arc therapy could improve dose conformality, which is making sure that all the proton dose is delivered to the target and as little as possible irradiates normal tissue or nearby organs. So speaking at ESTRO, Laura Toussaint from the Danish Centre for Particle Therapy shared the findings of several published studies comparing proton arc therapy with other treatments. So, for example, one study looked at a whole brain radiotherapy treatment. And here the aim was to avoid irradiating the hippocampus in the brain because that could affect the patient's memory function. So the researchers created treatment plans for several different X-ray based and proton based techniques. And they found that while all of these delivered equivalent doses to the tumour, proton arc therapy could reduce the dose to the hippocampus which is what they were aiming at. Another potential benefit is that proton arc therapy could increase treatment robustness. Now, this just means that um, it's less sensitive to uncertainties in beam range and patient position, etc. So in another study, treatment plans were created for head and neck cancer using proton arc therapy and intensity modulated proton therapy, which is the current state-of-the-art technique. Now, as well as proton arc providing um, less dose to nearby organs, it was also more robust to changes in patient setup and anatomy. So again, this one study showed that, yes, it could increase robustness. And then finally, the last potential benefit is that proton arc therapy could reduce treatment times compared with existing techniques. So Toussaint presented a study showing that proton arc therapy was 50% faster than VMAT, which is an X-ray-based radiotherapy treatment um, for treating a spine cancer. Now, this is just one example, but it's important because faster treatments mean that a proton therapy center could treat more patients each day. And also there's less chance of a patient moving if the treatment takes less time. Well, that sounds like some positive results, but but proton therapy is very expensive to begin with. Would a hospital need to install new equipment to deliver proton arc therapy? It should be possible to deliver this using um, existing modern proton therapy systems. Zhuang Feng Ding from William Beaumont Hospital in the US, he described his team's work in creating such a clinical system. They're working to develop spot scanning proton arc therapy. Uh, and this involves moving the patient couch and the gantry, switching energy layers and scanning the beam, all whilst continuously delivering the proton beam. Now, they're working with Belgian company IBA, and they've now demonstrated proton arc delivery using one of IBA's clinical systems, the Proteus One. So one of the big challenges in creating a proton arc system is going to be rotating the massive gantry. And, and these weigh 100 tonnes or more. And you've got to rotate this whilst delivering the proton beam with high accuracy. So using their Proteus One system, 
Ding and his team have now um, demonstrated that during gantry rotations, the proton beam spot maintained a constant size and it had a positioning accuracy of around one millimeter, which is really promising. And they've also developed um, a special algorithm for planning treatments using this new technique. So Ding says that they're on, on the right track towards introducing proton arc therapy into the clinic and predicts that it could be used to treat a variety of disease sites. And Tammy, I gather that proton arc therapy could also have some uh, advantages with regards to biological effects. W what are these? Yes. So the third speaker in this session, Alejandro Carab from Hampton University Proton Therapy Institute in the US, he talked about the impact of linear energy transfer or LET. Now, LET is a property of radiation beams in which a higher value of LET makes the beam more harmful to cancer cells for the same delivered dose. So his idea was that proton arc therapy can be used to control this LET distribution. And he analyzed a prostate cancer treatment and showed that they could use proton arc therapy to concentrate high LET within the target volume. Now, this is called LET painting. And, and if this could be successfully implemented, it could enable use of a lower treatment dose, but giving the same clinical effect, or they could reduce the number of treatments. Basically, it provides another parameter that could be exploited to make the treatment as effective as possible with as few side effects as possible. So looking back to your question of whether proton arc therapy is actually needed or not, Karab says that yes, it is, but not just based on a pure physics argument that it has better dose delivery but based on the potential for enhancing the biological impact. Well, thanks, Tammy. Thanks for giving us an update on that uh, fascinating technique. You can read more about proton arc therapy in Tammy's article on the Physics World website. Look for the headline, Proton Arc Therapy. Do we need it? Can we deliver it? Thanks, Tammy. Thanks, Hamish. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Sophie Jenkovic, Henry Preston, Tammy Freeman, and Laura Hiscott for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Callum Jelf. We'll be back again next week, but in the meantime, do have a listen to the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. This month, host Andrew Glester hears from scientists and software engineers at the vanguard of developing free and open-source software for physics research. You can find all the stories podcasts on the Physics World website or on your favorite podcast app. Physics World.